0: Today's episode is brought to you by MetaMask Portfolio. You'll be hearing more about them later on, but for now, let's get into today's interview. It's the afternoon of Tuesday, October 17th, and I am joined by Chris Whalen of Whalen Global Advisors. Chris, welcome back to Forward Guidance. Great to see you.
1: Always a pleasure, Jack. Most interesting conversation I have...
0: Oh, thank you so much. I I feel the same way. The timing is perfect, Chris. On Friday we had J.P. Morgan, we had Wells Fargo. Yesterday we had Schwab. Today yeah. we have Bank of America and Goldman uh, uh, Sachs. So far, of the you know six or seven major financial institutions that have uh, reported, I, I believe the term that you used so far to describe the earnings is cautiously mediocre. <laughs> what makes you uh, make that characterization?
1: Well, on the one hand, the banks have lower credit costs, mostly. Um, but on the other hand, it's very clear that the normalization of uh, the bond market and funding costs has essentially taken away a lot of the returns that these banks were trying to capture back in 2021-22 20, when they had lots of exposure, but funding costs were zero. Um, now that we've normalized the cost of funding for the banks, They are more and more trying to increase their yields, but the cost of funds is rising faster than the yields on loans and and new securities. The other issue, of course, is that we're not making many new loans. We're gonna have a a record low in residential mortgages this year, below a trillion dollars in production. And the same thing is going on in commercial lending. I sit with the loan production team uh, at the dealer I work with in New York, and they're basically out of business till January. Everybody said, our allocations are full. We'll talk to you next year. For, for mortgages? For everything. For small balance commercial, for large commercial. You know, if you look six months ago, Jack, there were big investors. All the big buy side guys were buying loans hand over fist. They were buying jumbo mortgages with 5 and $10 million loan amounts, right? They're not doing that today. They're buying twos, if anything. And on the commercial side, because there's such uncertainty, as to what some of these assets are worth, a lot of the big buyers have just stepped back and said, well, okay, wait, we're going to see what happens. So, for example, uh, look at some of the marks that the banks are talking about. Look at what Bank of America is talking about on their commercial loan exposures. They basically have cut them in half. And I think that's the appropriate posture for the bank to take. If they get the money back later, great. They can take a gain. But I think for now, when you're talking about urban commercial properties, especially older properties, you've got to be very, very cautious. If you read The Real Deal, which is one of my favorite reads when I have time, they're cataloging all of these restructurings, foreclosures, everything else. And it's because these assets are underutilized. Walk around New York City, we have lots of tourists, but the buildings are empty. We still have a, a really significant underutilization of big office buildings in New York, most of the major cities around the country, including the South. You would think Texas and the rest of the South would be different. They're not. Atlanta. I mean, I, I, it's astounding, but all of these cities are dealing with a sudden change in the use case for commercial properties that nobody anticipated. It's like we wound the clock back a hundred years. We've taken Henry Ford and kidnapped him, right? So we don't have this car centric commuter centric model. For cities anymore. People realize that they could work at home. And there are whole industries like residential mortgage that will never go back to the office. Why should they? You know, they should be out making loans. So that I think is the big change. You need back office people. You need certain critical functions in offices. But the front office people, the sales people, no. No, they can work on the road.
0: Okay. So banks own a lot of of real estate loans, commercial real estate loans, which is apartment buildings, Mm -hmm. but particularly office. Is it true, Chris, though, that uh, office loans are a small percentage of commercial real estate and that the real bank exposure is in the regional banks, not the banks we're going to be talking about today, not the JP Morgan's and the the Bank of America? I think Wells has the biggest uh, CRE exposure, but it's, Mm -hmm. it's nowhere close to a lot of the regionals. Is that fair?
1: Well, yes and no. The regionals tend to lend in footprint. They tend to lend on small to mid-sized companies, and they, in turn, lend on their real estate. A small and mid-sized enterprise will typically own their office space, their factory space, et cetera. So, of course, the smaller banks have smaller commercial loans. It doesn't make them any less significant to the bank. But remember, a commercial loan is typically 50 cents on the dollar, so they have 50% equity, 50% debt. So
0: You're talking about commercial real estate. That's CRE. right. Yeah.
1: That, that's what the regulators want to see. So if the bank decides that a property is impaired, let's say the rent roll is down, they've had to make a lot of concessions to the tenants, et cetera. Basically, they're going to wipe out the equity, but they're protecting the loan, if you know what I mean. And mm-hmm. they, they're going to see what happens. The trouble is, is that in this market, if, if we're still talking about Fed interest rate hikes, it's hard to sell those assets normally when banks are trying to liquidate commercial properties or the FDIC is trying to sell dead banks, the Fed has already dropped interest rates because we've had a recession or we've had a financial crisis. And that puts the wind at your back. If you're trying to sell these things, you have buyers out there and they're anxious Mm -hmm. to buy. Today, if rates go up anymore, uh, it becomes problematic in terms of getting an investor to come in, even on a Deep discount basis to buy that commercial real estate from a regional. So, do the regionals have percentage more, uh, proportionally more uh, commercial real estate exposure than the big guys? Yes, because they don't do the Wall Street business. They mm-hmm. don't do the other kind of asset management businesses. You know, half of JP Morgan is asset management capital markets, it's less than half bank. Uh, same thing with Citi. So, Yes, the business models are different. Proportionally, the commercial real estate is a bigger asset class for smaller banks. But that doesn't mean it's a problem. It just means that you have to be cognizant of it. And you have to look at each bank because they are all chopped salad. Each one of these banks is different. You know, people always go on and on about Bank OZK, the old bank of the Ozarks. Yeah, They tend, they tend to lend on development loans. By the time the building's built, they're out. So, you know, it, it depends on where you are in the life cycle of the asset. Are you lending for construction? Are you lending, you know, again, the front for development purposes? Or are you holding the mortgage on a finished property? If you're holding the mortgage on an old building in downtown, almost anywhere in America, then you're probably going to mark that asset down just to be conservative.
0: Okay. And would you mark that down because of, of credit or of interest rate risk? And if it's both, uh, uh, tell us about that. Because I think of you know, fixed rate mortgages, almost all of them are, are are fixed rate with a maturity of three. And when you get paid back depends on a whole, you know, prepayment, mm-hmm. all sorts of stuff like that. But when it comes to commercial real estate, I think that of a lot of those as a floating rate loans. And yes. if that is the case, and if the real problem that banks so far have faced is not credit risk, but interest rate risk, I think I wish Schwab owned more commercial real estate, I wish Bank of America owned more commercial real mm-hmm. estate loans, so mm-hmm. that they had the floating rate exposure instead of owning a, a fixed rate uh, mortgages. And you know, I'm aware that this uh, quote has the possibility to, to age very poorly. Uh, I, I'm, I'm prepared for that.
1: It, yeah. But, it's, not, it's not a rate issue per se. It's, it's, an, it's a loan the value rate issue. So if I'm a commercial lender, the regulators say I've got to have 50 cents on the dollar of equity, right? If the value of the building goes down, or if I even see that the rent roll is falling compared to a year ago, two years ago, I know the building's worth less. I also know that investors are looking for higher cap rates on those buildings. So they are gonna be demanding higher returns. And again, that's gonna hit the lender because let's say I'm the bank and I hold the mortgage on that building and there's been a 10% erosion in the the net operating income for the building. I'm gonna turn around to the owner, quote unquote, and ask them for more equity before I roll the mortgage, because I want that mortgage at 50 LTV. If it goes up to 60 or 70, I got a problem, because that's an impaired asset. And I've got to probably uh, put it under special mention and other types of uh, labels that they use for assets where they're not sure if they're gonna get paid back. So that's the issue, Jack, is that if you start seeing economic deterioration in an office building or any kind of commercial building, you know that when that loan comes up, the bank is going to want more cash. And remember, these are often interest-only loans. There's no amortization of principle here. So if you've got an interest-only loan that you assumed was going to be rolled at the end of the seven years, for example, and all of a sudden the building's worth 20% less or more, uh, you've got a problem. Because if you don't put more cash in, the bank's going to put the property up for sale. And then what do you do if there's no buyer? You see, the bank doesn't want the property. But on the other hand, do they want to carry you at a 50 or 60 LTV on that loan, knowing that the property may lose more value next year, year after? That That's the problem right now. And the only way to fix this is for the Fed to drop interest rates. But you, you and I know that's not going to happen tomorrow.
0: No, it's not going to happen tomorrow. It's, it's not going to happen uh, on, on November 1st, uh, nor, nor in December. So how, uh, let, let I, I think we're talking about commercial real estate as, as a risk and it has been a risk for a long time, but I think it's under, important to underscore a point, Chris, that you've been making that is so far for a lot of banks, credit is not an issue. And we've seen yep. normalization of delinquencies, defaults, charge offs, uh, you know, to, to 2019 levels, not above something. So you know, if, if delinquencies are go from 10 basis points to, to 60 basis points, it's uh, delinquency is going up six times, up up five hundred percent. But mm-hmm. or, or, um, but it's it's still fifty basis points, which is, you know, banks can banks can deal with that.
1: Indeed. And you've seen this especially in a lot of the commentary about auto loans, credit cards. Everybody's going, oh me, oh my. Look, there's a trillion dollars worth of credit card loans again. Well, the trouble is, is that there's probably three trillion, four trillion worth of unused lines that the banks want you to use. They'd be happy to have more utilization of credit cards. Also, if you adjust that number for inflation, we're actually using less credit than we were 10 years ago. So you you really have to always remember context when you're looking at time series data, because the the meaning of the data changes over time. This was the great error that Piketty made in his book uh, years ago. He had all this data that he got, but he never really addressed the fact that the data the meaning of the data changes over time, especially when you're talking about centuries. So that's that's really the issue. We are not even close to having a crisis of, on the consumer side. And this is why I've characterized this as a silent recession, a silent crisis, because it's mostly loaded on the commercial side and you don't hear about it. These are professional owners on both sides of the table. You get the bankers, you get the developers. And what they typically do is either extend the loan if the value of the property hasn't been impaired too badly, or they may have to restructure the thing and just wipe out the equity and start again. They turn the debt into equity and they try and lever it up again. But in today's market, you're not gonna be able to get as much leverage under a commercial property as you could three, four years ago, not even close. And the cost is gonna be much higher, much higher, double digits in some cases.
0: And at what point does this become an issue or at what point am I going to be reading about this or seeing this even in bank reports? Because looking through the Bank of America report today, you know, the charge off rates for commercial loans, including commercial real estate, but all all commercial Mm. is is nine basis points, which is pretty close Mm -hmm. to zero. I'm aware that credit is lagging, but if these issues are so big, how come we haven't seen it and when are we going to see it?
1: Oh, because the banks are going to slow walk these situations as much as they can. You know, I've been writing about a a situation with Texas Capital Bank where they've taken a significant hit on a uh, Ginny May issuer that failed last year. Now they're suing Ginny May because they believe that they were given uh, a firm understanding that they could lend and be protected. So the bank hasn't taken that loss yet. They may Mm -hmm. not take that loss.
0: Wasn't Ginny May supposed to be guaranteed by the government? Explain to me.
1: Well, no, this is different. It's the reverse market. The issuer went down and the lender had been lending what are called tails or participations which is how they give the borrower cash you know a reverse borrower you've seen these late night uh, advertisements they get cash instead of paying cash they're taking equity out of their house to finance that however is onerous especially when interest rates are up this high so we've already had one issuer fail reverse mortgage funding And we're probably going to have more fail uh, over the next year or so. And
0: and how is it that on single-family homes, uh, reverse mortgages are failing? Because the the data on mortgage delinquencies or home HELOC... uh, Yeah,
1: the loans aren't failing the issuer, the guy who's responsible to advance cash to grandma.
0: How did the the issuer fail?
1: (laughs) Because they couldn't fund themselves. Okay. The rates went up.
0: Okay, okay. So no, we're, again, we're the,
1: talking SOFR plus two today. So that's, you know, seven and a half percent. That business doesn't work when rates get that high.
0: No, especially when you're, you're making mortgages at three or four uh, percent.
1: Yeah. So it's legacy mortgages. Remember, FHA reimburses you at the debenture rate if you have a problem with an asset like that and you're paying seven, seven and a half. So, you know, that's a big mismatch. And this is across the board. It doesn't matter what kind of loan you're talking about. Just about everything in the residential world from an issuer perspective is underwater. The consumers are fine. It's the issuers who are having difficulty.
0: So if interest rate risk remains a, a severe issue, but credit risk is only beginning to, to peak its yeah. head and not nearly as bad as a lot of folks have been saying for, for over a year now, are bank stocks a buy? Are they a sell? How do you think about bank stocks? And obviously, you'll let's get into specifics on specific names.
1: Well, sure. I mean, the only common position I have right now is New York Community Bank, which we've talked about before. They're doing quite well. they are like four or five on my list. Um, Who else? We got UBS, Deutsche, uh, a couple of others, but most of them are going to remain weak until we get a little better visibility on earnings. I would tell you that that's going to take a couple of quarters simply because, you know, if you're an investor right now and you're not sure what the asset quality of the bank is? Do you want to go long a common equity? I would say if you want exposure, uh, given how royal these markets have been, you might go shopping for preferreds uh, mm-hmm. before you look at the commons. Uh, I haven't added to my position, but you know, I, I still feel very uh, good about New York Community Bank because they bought part of the signature failure. Before that, they had merged with Flagstar, so it's now a national uh, mortgage business. They're number two behind J.P. Morgan is a warehouse lender to non-banks. Um, and, I, and it's an impressive uh, institution. And of course, it's New York. Uh, <laughs> but they can't use that name outside of New York. They actually go by Flagstar in the rest of the country.
0: Mm. What would you have to see for you to uh, start taking some long positions in common equity?
1: Well, I think depending on the banks, um, you could start chopping uh, for some of the uh, residential mortgage lenders, uh, Western Alliance, for example, it's one of the best performing banks in the country in 21, but then it got sold off dramatically when housing slowed down. Now, everybody was waiting for credit to come and bite us on housing, right? But it didn't happen. Mm-hmm. So you have a lot of stocks that are down on their luck. The, the One of the top five that I like probably the most is Wells. I think mm-hmm. they are slowly getting their act together. They've gotten their operating efficiency down in the 60s from, you know, the 70s and the 80s uh, where it was because they had all these expenses related to the regulators and the lawyers and everything else. That's over. Um, And I think as the bank shrinks, which it is doing, uh, they are going to end up with higher equity returns. That's the irony here, Jack. These banks got expanded and bloated by the Fed's open market operations and it hurt their equity returns. It hurt their asset returns. Now, as we get these banks smaller, look at Schwab. I think Schwab is going to end up being more profitable, at least from an equity perspective, when they get that bank down and their total assets are on balance sheet assets are down, you know, in the $300 billion range. At one point, they were bigger than U.S. Bank. Back in in 2021, 22, they were the sixth largest bank in the country, but the whole thing was just a big interest rate trade. They have no loans. Their loans are like 10% of their book. So, it, this is a classic example of market risk. Uh, they have a lot of securities. They've moved a lot of securities that they're going to hold to maturity. They've sold a lot of securities. The shorts tried to kill the bank, but they were unsuccessful. And I think now Schwab's going to go back to what it was supposed to be, which is managing $7.5 trillion worth of off balance sheet uh, funds for their clients. The bank was supposed to just be a an extra, you know, it was supposed to provide services to the clients, maybe a little yield. But when you saw the bank was bigger than the rest of the business, that was a clue that said, no, this is this is not a good idea. Because if you compare them with, say, Raymond James or Stifle, uh, who are all banks, right? Those two little competitors are actually more profitable dollar for dollar than Schwab. Stifle's great. I love that company. But they're also very small. They're not going to attract the attention of the big Wall Street. Uh, managers,
0: regarding Schwab, tell tell me about your views on. You, you're you're right. It's a huge interest rate trade. They bought a lot of Treasuries yep. and in particular mortgage-backed securities, Asian mortgage-backed securities, agency, and uh, that yielded very, very, very low rates when rates were zero. So uh, right. you know, right now their their yield on the held maturity is 1.72, which mm-hmm. is even lower than the yield on Bank of America, which is uh, 2.47. Schwab has lower cost of funds. Yep, you're
1: right. There's yeah. still the bottom. And I think that helps them. They're going to have to sit on those lo- low-yielding securities, some of which will be underwater. But you know, compare Schwab with Silicon Valley Bank. Mm-hmm. The guys at Schwab, I think, have very astutely managed the business. Did they let it get too big? Yes. Nobody thought interest rates would go up. We all got lulled to sleep. So or, folks, or go up
0: by 500 basis points.
1: Right. So the guys at Schwab got caught off base, but at least it didn't kill them. It may hurt their returns going forward for a few years until they can reprice that book. Um, but I, frankly, I think Schwab is out of the woods. Now, having said that, imagine if we have a shutdown in about a month, because we don't have a speaker in the house, and imagine that we have a serious problem with one of the big banks. Given the current interest rate environment, there is no way that the FDIC can sell another failed bank. There's not going to be a buyer out there. So the only thing that will be you know, doable is that the Fed will have to capitulate and they'll have to drop interest rates pretty rapidly.
0: You don't think Bank of America or JP Morgan can buy another one?
1: No, I don't think they would let them, number one. And number two, I don't think they wouldn't want to. They're too big. Um, you need to have the second group, you know, U- US Bank, Truist, those others, PNC, they can all buy things tomorrow. Um, and I think that's where the FDIC would go. But again, will those banks say yes? Will the bank and their auditors say, yeah, this is fair value for those assets. Go ahead. We're getting a 30% discount. If FDIC offers me a 30% discount, but I don't know what the fair value is today, can I say yes if I'm a director of the bank? No, I can't do it. So that's the trouble. You see, remember, FDIC is set up to finance the loss when they sell assets to a healthy bank. If all the banks are not healthy, then they can't help. And then that's what happened with uh, Silicon Valley and Signature. They had to liquefy the whole thing. FDIC is not set up for that. They're set up to basically sell banks as they did in 2008. They sold almost 500 banks perfectly, flawlessly. But if you don't have the right environment in the the interest rate market, nobody's going to show up. The room's going to be empty.
0: How is it that Schwab's cost of deposits is so low? It's lower than pretty much any other large financial institution I I, I know. It's 1.24% for the the quarter that just on $290 billion. How is that possible?
1: Because the customers aren't demanding more. They come from the advisors. These are transaction balances and things like that. Um, So that enables them to have a very cheap cost of funds. They don't really do much with that money. It goes into T-bills. What else are they going to do with it? They're well, not going to make 30 It goes years into mortgage.
0: 2020, 2021. It went into agency mortgage backs. Yep. That, yep. that's
1: right. But are they going to make 30-year mortgages with it and hold that on their balance sheet? No.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, remember, when they bought those mortgage backs, the average life of those mortgage backs was three or four years. That was a and short piece of paper. Now
0: it's, what, eight or something around there. Oh,
1: no, 15. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> this is called duration risk. And, and, and when the, you see an extension like that, the spreads go out, the average life of the mortgage back extends, the price goes down. That's what happens. This is a classic uh, example of extension risk, which has been the big bugaboo for Wall Street going back 40 years. You know, Think of how many crises we've had because people bought a piece of paper when rates were low. But it had variable duration, so rates go up, and all of a sudden the duration explodes.
0: But Chris, how often, you know, f- uh, over the course of your career or you know generations back, has it been this drastic in, you know, in less than two years a 500 basis point increase? There's 2015 six to eighteen, that was pretty mild, right? Uh, 2003 right. to 2006, then there's 1994. I know that was a that was a big one. But uh, this is this is kind of you know this is Volcker it Volcker yeah, right? was
1: worse. And again, you didn't hear a lot about it. You certainly knew the SNLs were in trouble, but these were tiny, tiny little institutions. These were not big New York money center banks that were in trouble. And so, as the SNLs got annihilated, basically the assets were bought and then sold. And slowly, and I mean, over a period of a decade, the banks started getting into the mortgage market. Before that, they really didn't get involved, especially national banks. They weren't allowed to. Uh, Real estate was seen as verboten coming out of the Great Depression. Uh, So, you know, things change. But I I think the key issue to me is that, you know, we have still a healthy economy. The Fed is trying to basically induce a recession so they can uh, get inflation under control. But I'm not sure it's going to work, Jack. You know, this economy seems to be ignoring them. Uh, And this is fascinating because, you know, all of the traditional conveyor belts for monetary policy and the appearance that the Fed could control economic outcomes have been challenged. We, we cannot say that these things are correct anymore.
0: Yes. Uh, so, Chris, you, you have been talking for a while about how all of the top banks are insolvent if you adjust for securities and loans to the market. Oh, so, yeah. so securities, uh, you know, treasuries, agency mortgage-backed securities... Those experience uh, marked market losses as interest rates rise. If they're available for sale, those are actually marked unless they're hedged. And a lot of there is some hedging unavailable for sale. Held to maturity is you know almost it's pretty much illegal to, to hedge interest rate risk. And yeah, you, uh, so it, you it's buy not it on hedge. credit
1: now because you would eat up the return. When you yeah. hold, want to hold an asset, you buy it because you like the credit and you keep it.
0: Yep, I, I learned that that from you, and I you know I'm doing a, a little bit of work on Bank of America. We saw today their uh, unrealized losses on held maturity securities was $130 billion. That's less than their book value, but you're going a step further, which is very you know non traditional, I should say, but including the interest rate losses on mortgages. So instead of you're saying a, a mortgage made at $100. Um, it's now worth 85 85 cents or 80 cents on the dollar even though loans are n- are not marked to market and you're saying that the financial institutions are insolvent my question to you is does it matter and also should we be taking into account the the uh, the the not marked gain on the liability side of the fact that deposit costs are not rising as much as as you know the fed funds rate
1: well no deposit costs are rising faster than the fed funds rate but yes it matters and here's why the whole um, definition of held to maturity requires that you have the capacity and the intention to hold the asset to, till it redeems. If you can't do that, if the fact that the asset is underwater and you basically are losing money every month that you hold it, if you decide to reverse that and sell the asset, you basically have to mark the entire portfolio to market. So today, if you look at a Ginny May 3, it's trading at about 82 cents on the dollar, okay? The loans and the mortgage-backed securities are the same in a sense, because I can put more leverage under the mortgage-backed security. I can only really put one times leverage under a loan. But if I have to sell it, it's really the same. Loans are less liquid. So I'll get a discount on the loan that I wouldn't get on the mortgage-backed security. So in a way, I kind of am more concerned about the loan portfolio when you see this big interest rate shift. Because what if I have to sell it? What if I just wanted to raise money and repo those loans out? Uh, the haircut I'm gonna get on a, a loan with a two and a half coupon versus a seven and a half coupon is about the same as the price differential and the mortgage backed security today. So imagine if I took a bunch of two and a half loans, tried to finance them with another bank, and they say, fine, uh, we'll give you 78 cents on the dollar. <laughs> you know, that's not helpful. <laughs> and that's, that's why you have to be concerned about the loan book when you see this kind of move in interest rates. If we had a two or three point move, eh, it wouldn't be as, as concerning. But when you start with the securities and you're almost insolvent there, and then you think about loans, which are two to three times the securities portfolio in the banking industry. Then it becomes a problem because it's if you're the treasurer of the bank, you have to always think about what are my liquid assets, what could I sell tomorrow without taking a loss? And banks are seeing a very, very constrained uh, percentage of their assets that are available for sale that can be sold without seeing the bank take a capital loss. That's that's why it's an issue.
0: But I feel like if you're if you're worried about this risk, you should be worried about Schwab, right?
1: Well, yes and no Schwab has the income to hold the securities that they have. They've said that mm-hmm. very clearly. They don't have many loans. they, they have mm-hmm. a, a small mortgage book uh, and again uh, you probably have a similar profile to those loans as you do in any other bank because they originated during that same period. I you know it would be nice if they had, had been smart enough to sell two and a halfs when they were originated because you know they could have sold them for 104 during uh, the great ease. But today, the market for those loans is is very different. You don't see people paying big premiums for for new or used loans at all.
0: But sh- So who, if Schwab does have the earnings pow- power, you say, to, to fund those mm-hmm. low-yielding securities, who doesn't have the earnings power?
1: Bank of America. They're, despite the fact that their revenues were up, uh, they're still a highly inefficient institution. They need to they need to cut a few points off of their efficiency ratio. Same with Citi. Citi is still in the high 60s and again, you don't like to see that. When you know, when Jamie Dimon bought First Republic, he got a big bump. He he actually reported an efficiency ratio last quarter of 49, and everybody knew that that was a little too low. But still, Jamie has kept his bank in the mid to high 50s for years with expense management and also very strong earnings results. The other banks have to pick up the pace if they want to compete with him. You know, he's still trading at one and a half times book. A lot of these other banks are trading below book. That tells you what you need to know, Jack.
0: Yes. And the reported book value does not take into account held to maturity.
1: No, that's right. And this is one of my favorite pet peeves, as you know. Everybody goes on TV and they talk about how high interest rates are good for banks. No, they're not. Because the issue we just spent the last 10 minutes talking about is you should subtract the mark-to-market losses from book value, because that tells you what you've got. If you were trying to buy that bank tomorrow, that's what you would do. You would subtract the mark-to-market losses, and you would come up with a net value for the equity, and that's what you would pay.
0: Today's interview is brought to you by MetaMask Portfolio, your one-stop shop to manage your crypto assets and access a range of Web3 services all in one place. Overseeing your crypto assets across different wallets and networks can be very complicated. MetaMask Portfolio solves this by giving you the range to manage your crypto from a single decentralized application or DAP. Just connect to MetaMask Portfolio to get a bird's eye view of all your coins, tokens, and NFTs, and you can easily buy, sell, swap, bridge, and stake crypto assets at competitive rates right within the app from a vetted list of providers. No more jumping between dozens of sites and apps. MetaMask Portfolio lets you do more in Web3 your way, giving you secure and convenient access to a wide range of features and services all in one place. Manage your portfolio your way with MetaMask Portfolio. Click the link in the description of today's episode to get started. Thanks. Let's get back to the interview. So, Chris, we know you're not terribly bullish on a lot of these banks, to, to put it. mildly, not not Are you yet. bearish on them? If you think so many top banks are insolvent, uh, I wouldn't be why, adding why not to, be bearish?
1: I wouldn't be adding to common equity positions on these banks. Um, mm-hmm. I don't expect any of the big ones to fail but I think that the equity needs to go down to reflect the true book value. So if in the meantime, you want exposure to them, go look at the preferreds. You're Mm -hmm. higher up the capital structure. You won't get your feet wet, hopefully. And you may see some of these banks have to raise common equity eventually. So keep that in the back of your mind. I mean, between the idiocy coming from the regulators with the new Basel proposal, which I think, I hope is going to get shot down, uh, and then the market risks that we've just been talking about. You know, if you're a banker, Jamie Dimon was talking about this. He's going to potentially have to go out and raise a lot of equity or he will sell a lot of assets. And I suspect it's going to be the latter. So what you want to see if you're out trying to, you know, window shop banks, you want to look for management teams that are addressing this issue with a great sense of purpose and urgency. You want to see people selling low coupon assets reinvesting the funds in higher yielding assets. And those are the ones who have the capital to do it. You know, Jamie's been reporting almost a a billion dollars in losses every quarter from security sales. Mm -hmm. And that's just because he's trying to get this stuff out of here. He's starting to securitize a lot of his mortgage assets. Jamie's the biggest servicer in the country. Most people don't know that. He's the biggest residential servicer in the country. He surpassed uh, Wells Fargo a couple of quarters ago. And again, Wells is getting smaller. They're headed out the door. They don't want to know about mortgage risk anymore. They're going to look just like Bank of America. They don't buy third-party production. They just take loans that originated in their system. And, and
0: JP Morgan was the, the gold standard for interest rate risk in terms of not yeah. buying all this long-duration stuff. That's
1: right. They have a reasonably... A small portfolio. It's a couple hundred billion. They have to own some. Those are jumbos. Those mm-hmm. are loans from their customers. Very high credit quality, 50 basis points of servicing, by the way, which is very nice. So he loves those assets. He loves being a warehouse lender to, to smaller uh, banks and non banks. You know, First Republic was a client of JP Morgan, they were their clearing bank and they also financed their loan production.
0: Chris, what's going on with with Goldman Sachs? They're taking a lot of uh, losses on their ventures into the consumer banking space from, from you know, 2018 mm-hmm. to, to 2021. They're exiting that, that business. You're seeing a lot of uh, reports, maybe not in the Wall Street Journal, but in places like the, the New York Post about perhaps some partners being very dissatisfied with uh, um, the, the CEO, David Solomon. He's, uh, you know, was into DJing. He's now announced that he's retiring from DJing on the side to focus on, <laughs> on the yeah. banking. And they just, they just reported a quarter. They took a few, of, you know, I'm not going to make a mountain out of mole, but they took a, a little bit of losses in uh, private equity and then real estate. Yep. They also uh, wrote down their uh, intangible value goodwill uh, in, in Green Sky, which I believe is their consumer loan business. So yeah, I mean, adjusted their return on equity is, uh, is not great. What's, what's going on with this, you know, uh, historically legendary institution?
1: I think that their effort to move outside of the two traditional silos that they've had, which was capital markets and you know what they call asset management, uh, was just doomed to failure. They didn't do their homework. Growing a consumer bank is about the most difficult thing I can think of because the regionals we were just talking about, they go after that business hammer and tong. They want small and mid-sized enterprises. They want the owners of the small and mid-sized enterprises too. They want their deposits. They want their investment business. So Goldman going into that marketplace against the Schwabs and everybody else, I think it had a low probability of success. They have refused to think about uh, transformational transactions, for example, buying a bank. But if you look at all the money that they've lost over the last couple of years with these so-called organic strategies, they could have bought a bank. I wanted them to take a look at Key because Key is a big commercial real estate player. They love real estate. Goldman loves real estate. It would have been a nice marriage. And by the way, they have $110, $120 billion in core deposits. Uh, The regulators would not have let David and his colleagues actually run the bank, but that's okay it would have made the overall organization stronger. I think Goldman ought to tie up with Citi. That would make sense. We can consolidate. A city.
0: isn't Citi bigger than Goldman? Well,
1: of course they are, but you know, yeah. they, they're both down on their luck and the point yeah. is is that you merge two capital markets businesses and you have this good sized bank with uh, almost 3 quarters of a trillion dollars worth of core deposits, huge payments platform, huge consumer loan book that generates lots of income. It would diversify two firms that really are two-legged stools right now. That's the problem with Goldman. They don't have a big asset management business. They don't make a lot of money on that AUM. Compare mm-hmm. what they make with Morgan Stanley. Morgan Stanley makes twice as much money. So I think for David, when he talks about a pivot, where are we going, David? What are, Where are we pivoting to? And I ultimately think Goldman is now last in line, the way Bear was, the way You know, Credit Suisse first Boston was, and there could eventually get bought.
0: Really, by by whom?
1: I don't know. Maybe a large, happy European institution. But I think ultimately, the also rans in banking, they eventually get merged. The problem is, is that we can't go to the top five banks. They would Mm -hmm. never allow that. I think the only way you could do a a transaction with Goldman would be to put them together with somebody like City, because then at least we're solving two problems. You know? I
0: wasn't aware that you, you thought the situation was that bad at, at Goldman. I knew it was bad. City that, that has been yeah. a problem child uh, since pretty much 2007. Your entire uh,
1: life, 50 years. Yeah. Then Dick Bove said that, by the way, who I love. He's a dear friend. You know, 50 years of restructuring, that's where we are. We should do a book. It'd be like a good Mexican book, you know, 50 years of solitude.
0: Yeah, that's actually, yeah. actually one of my favorite books. But uh, so, City, their return on equity has been meager. Mm. Uh, they're, they're you know trade at a very right. cheap valuation on book value because the return on equity is so meager. Well, because the
1: expenses, is- the expenses are too high. It, Jane cannot go to the party unless she gets her efficiency ratio down in the low sixties and keeps it there. you Not-
0: think she knows that? She's she's talking yeah. as if she knows that. Yeah,
1: she does. I mean, look, she is trying to flatten that organization, get rid of committees, get rid of all the other stuff that they should have gotten rid of 10 years ago. But Citi was a, an institution for so long that they kind of went their own way. They had crappy internal systems and controls that they didn't spend money on. Now she's having to address a lot of this stuff. Uh, and at a time when she's trying to keep costs under control, that's painful. So I, I feel for them, it's a great institution, but I think it's lost its reason to exist in the, new, in the market we're in today versus say 40, 50 years ago. And Goldman, frankly, is in the same boat. They're trying to do business like it's 1983, but you can't, this is a different market. And I, you know, if Schwab gets cheap enough, David should get down on his hands and knees and sell the uh, Goldman business to Schwab. And uh, you know, that might be a winner. But they need wow. to they're not a depository that's goldman's problem
0: chris why why is goldman uh you know an investment business of both investment banking so raising money for people and then yep. trading a lot of uh, you know fixed income sales intermediation yeah. equity trading those two businesses uh you know are very profitable business and have been profitable businesses since 1983. why is it that you think goldman is now finding itself out of step with the time
1: i, I think those businesses come and go they are highly cyclical they're very much correlated to interest rates. So sometimes they're great, sometimes they're not. They're also very idiosyncratic. In other words, you get risks like you know, 1MDB, all of the rest of them, where you had a operational reputational risk that was hiding that suddenly explodes. And next thing you know, the firm is all over the newspaper. The regulators don't like to see that kind of headline risk with a bank. So if you don't have An asset management business, the way Morgan Stanley does, it can kind of add a little bit of stability to the mix, so the variation in the capital market side uh, is muted somewhat, you have a problem. And then, of course, the Goldman investment business, they act as principal. They act on behalf of their clients. They put them in the real estate. They put them into all sorts of other things. That's a high-risk business, because if you get it wrong, all of a sudden, you're in the front of the newspaper again, and your clients are unhappy. So if you compare the Goldman business with any of the other big asset gatherers, as I like to call them, they're just a much more risky proposition. Huge derivatives book, huge. The biggest uh, on Wall Street is a percentage of the uh, assets of the firm. And then you also have to remember that they're constantly being dogged by regulatory and and other issues that are hiding and then suddenly emerge one day. Uh, Lastly, funding. Goldman has no comparative advantage in terms of funding. So both they and Morgan Stanley have seen their their uh, interest costs going up very fast. And there's not much they can do about it because, again, they're not a bank. You know, Morgan Stanley's got 300 plus 400 billion some odd in bank assets. So that helps. That adds stability. Goldman doesn't have that.
0: Hmm. I'm I'm just looking at the series of financial companies to report over the next few days. So we've got American Express.
1: Uh, American Express, best performing US bank. Mm. A little shy yeah. of five times book value.
0: Uh, we've got and then we've got the regional banks. We've got uh, US Bancorp, PNC, yep. Truist, Comerica, Key, which you mentioned uh bank of the ozarks a, a smaller entity yeah what are you what's what's on uh your radar and uh you know what do you think are going to be some <coughs> some, some uh, banks that show uh resilience and banks that may have some issues
1: u.s bank is digesting the acquisition of union bank of california from mitsubishi ufg that will take them a few more quarters but i expect to see u.s bank fall back in the place behind jp morgan in terms of their overall performance. So, if you like the organization, you want to buy it cheap, this is when you do it, because they're trading around buck. They've taken a bit of a hit. And again, it's because their results are just not as good as they were before the acquisition. And I think investors have to work through that. PNC, I expect good things from them. Very interesting institution. They're kind of picking where they want to get involved and where they don't. They've managed to avoid a lot of Wall Street exposure. Uh, Truist, you know, I love BBT. I was not a big fan of the merger uh, with SunTrust. And then they came up with this ridiculous name. I I think they should go back to BBT immediately. Uh, But overall, they are getting better. They're they're slowly working through the expenses from the acquisition. And, you know, uh, again, they should be very well placed because the big guys can't buy anything. They're all basically in the penalty box. Even Jamie. Jamie took uh, First Republic because nobody else was gonna buy them. He had the collateral, he was the clearing bank for them. That's it. Same as Bear Stearns, by the way. Uh, the others, they could buy something. I'm not sure they would let Jane buy something because she doesn't have enough capital. Uh-huh. Um,
0: Isn't US Bank having some, some capital issues uh, with, with if you adjust some capital ratios? I've seen people say that their, their capital ratio is, is quite low.
1: Uh, yes, again, because of the acquisition. They, mm-hmm. they are gonna get smaller you're going to see U.S. bank head back down towards half a trillion dollars, I would say, as, soon, mm-hmm. as as quickly as they can. Remember, when they closed that acquisition and they got all those California branches, they were suddenly the second largest bank uh, lender after J.P. Morgan.
0: Right. But California is not a place you want to be.
1: <laughs> well, yes and no. I mean, at least you can foreclose in California. You can't do that in New York. The New York uh, mortgage market's going back into the deep freeze, you know. As long as we have crazy people in albany who don't think that people should pay their bills uh this is going to be a problematic state for lenders there are a lot of mortgage lenders that will not do business in new york uh, if they pick up conventional assets from new york they sell them that's not good there's a 10 point difference between non-performing loans in new york and california
0: because you can foreclose in for california but you can not in new york i didn't know that is that why Signature, uh, the failed Signature Bank, is that why their assets are having trouble being sold?
1: No, it's a more complicated matter. Yes, the rent control legislation that was passed in 2019 is not helpful. But more importantly, you know, the whole uh, category of rent controlled real estate is now out of luck because Signature was one of the few banks that were willing to lend on it, the, that was willing to provide letters of credit and other services for the landlords that own those properties. They don't want anything to do with it. Uh, Flagstar bought the non-rent controlled assets. They offered to service the rest of it. Uh, but nobody wants to own those assets. That's a, tr- that's a problem. FDIC actually kept the majority position in all of the JVs they created to hold those assets. Because the statute allows them to protect housing for low income communities for a period of time. But eventually they'll have to sell those assets and they're going to go to deep discounts.
0: What about the card issuers? You mentioned American Express, obviously right. Bank of America, Citi, JP Morgan, they've got a, a big Discovered. cards business. But if, if you say the, the economy will continue to, to, to hang in there and that you know, net charge-offs will remain mm-hmm. in 2019 levels and, and they're getting those higher rates, what do you think about an institution such as Capital One or those other uh, businesses that are very dependent on, on credit cards?
1: If you want to buy quality in that space you start with american express then you go to discover then you go to capital one the reason is not that capital one's bad they are actually very good at managing that card business they haven't been so good at getting into other businesses which occasionally they do and then like they, auto or auto oil they were into all sorts of things oh i didn't know uh, but, oil. <laughs> but then they but then they they left quickly so I think the way I would put it is the best in class is American Express. When you see that bank trade down the four times book, you definitely want to look at that as a long-term holding because they're small, they're well-managed, they turn their assets quickly. You know, it's just, it's it's like a non-bank with a bank license. They have a non-bank mentality, which is good. And then they have uh, very uh, cheap funding relative to some of their competitors. So you know, it's, it, it, it speaks for itself. If you just look at the performance of that stock, and how long they've been trading at that very high multiple, it kind of tells you what you need to know.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what about private equity? I, I talked about uh, BlackRock, You know, also Carlisle, mm-hmm. uh, Apollo, a lot of people saying private credit is going to replace banks because private credit, you know, it's much less re- uh, re- regulated, it is uh, shadow banking. Mm-hmm. And if they have a Credit issue, they can just hold on to the loss, and there's you know the risk of a bank run. If it's a closed-end fund, I, I guess is a uh, is zero. If it's closed-end fund,
1: I think there's too much money running around private equity lands, so that they say things like that, which are silly. Uh, I'll give you an example. When Credit Suisse decided to you know exit the U.S. residential mortgage market, they sold some of their assets to Apollo, to mm-hmm. a new vehicle they set up called Atlas. Mm-hmm. Atlas mm-hmm. picked up some of the financing in the Ginnie Mae space for a number of non-bank issuers. But Apollo wasn't silly enough to buy the Ginnie Mae servicing book from Credit Suisse, which they still own. And they also own the largest private label uh, mortgage servicer in the US. It's the rump of the old private label loans from uh, the 2000s. The private equity guys know that they don't have a funding advantage. They like to flatter themselves into thinking that they're smarter than everybody else, but they're not. So at the end of the day, the banks have an advantage here because they can warehouse failed you know, commercial properties, for example, and just sit on them for a period of years and the funding is cheap enough that they can do it. Private equity can't do that. They have a finite term for their funds and they also have to be somewhat transparent with their investors. So, for example, when you saw that Goldman got into trouble on some of their real estate investments, it's because they didn't anticipate the change in the market environment. And that rippled into the change from COVID and behavior patterns, commuter patterns, that sort of thing. And all of a sudden, assets that, you know, at the time they took the position were golden uh, are going begging. They're trading at a discount. You got to remember that commercial real estate going back 75 years in this country, was basically the gold standard. They would finance them with interest-only loans. At the end of the seven-year or five-year period, they would roll it. The value of the property would go up. They would take some equity out. They would refinance it, right? Now you're in the opposite situation where the mortgage comes up. You've got to put equity in to get it back up to 50 LTV, and then they're going to roll it at a higher interest rate. That's what's so tough. That's why you're seeing all these headlines about foreclosures in commercial properties. Because if I'm the owner, quote unquote, and I'm heavily levered, I look at the numbers, I look at the rent roll, and then I talk to the bank, and he says, well, Chris, you know, you got to put another 10, 20% equity into the deal. And i say, no, here's the keys. So, you know, whereas we had jingle mail with residential properties back in 2008, now you have the owner of a mall handing the bank the keys. It's a different sort of situation and this is why you don't hear about it jack because for every one of these things you read about in the industry press there's five more that are going on that nobody's talking about yet
0: and so do you have large concerns about banks that are heavily into commercial real estate such as key Corp., such as i think uh, western western alliance uh, bank of the ozarks
1: well they ozarks not so much because they tend to get you know they, they keep the exposures they want and get out of the rest The bigger banks don't have as much of a choice because they're hunting for really big assets and they're competing with other banks for those assets so the returns tend to be lower and there is a lot of credit risk so it's idiosyncratic you're going to have to go through each one of these banks jack and see where their exposures are um you know there are firms that do that research it's quite expensive and that way you can start to put together a picture but they're not going to tell you about this stuff immediately. Say If a, if a building goes into foreclosure, you'll, you may see a, a mention of it, right? But the bank lenders who hold that paper may sit on it for years if they can fund it. They are going to look for buyers almost immediately, right? But they may not find a buyer. So they'll just sit on it as long as they can.
0: How, how are you assessing the risk of another bank failure we had? Silicon Valley Bank failed, then we had First Republic Bank fail. I don't think we've had, another, definitely not a a, you know, anywhere, a bank anywhere close to, to that size mm-hmm. um, um, fail. Obviously, Signature failed the same day as Silicon Valley Bank, or uh, I guess two days later. Um, how are you assessing, assessing that risk? Because talking about if all these banks are insolvent, mm-hmm. if, there's no, if there's no bank run, and they never have to realize that loss, it, it doesn't matter, uh, and they can earn their way out, right?
1: Yes, if you have the funding, and you know what you're doing, you can. But what I would say to you is this, we're kind of on the edge of a knife now. The term funding program that they put in place in the first quarter has a, a hard stop at one year. Do you
0: think it's going to be renewed, the the bank term funding program?
1: No, I think they're going to try and come up with something else. They call it TARP 2.0. They kind of stole my idea from last year when we were talking about this, the mm-hmm. idea of repoing loans at whatever coupon they had and just waiting essentially for the Fed to drop interest rates. But something's gonna have to happen because if they don't provide some mechanism to fund these assets, uh, I think other banks are gonna get in trouble. And the the flexibility of FDIC and the Treasury to respond when a market is not willing to buy assets at a deep discount is is very limited. You know, we can't liquefy the entire industry. Our whole system is dependent on the fact that FDIC will take the loss when they sell the assets, right? But somebody else will fund the rest of the transaction and off they go. And by the way, they take the deposits and they take care of them. So that's, you know, that requires rates to fall. And normally when you're having a bank crisis or a credit crisis, the Fed has already dropped interest rates. Mm -hmm. But in this case, the Fed is still searching for their uh, virtue. In terms of because
0: well, we don't have a credit crisis as you said
1: not yet they're going to see if yep. they can create one so here's the question is the Fed going to destroy the world to prove to everybody that they're right you know that, mm-hmm. that's what I wonder because if we have a large bank rollover uh, we have serious problems in this country imagine if we have a shutdown we don't have a speaker of the house of course and, you know if they can't elect Jordan who are they going to elect right um, and then maybe we have a bank rollover. That's, to me, the nightmare scenario for the fourth quarter.
0: Wow. Uh, and on the deposit side, are you seeing any slowdown in deposit attrition or, a, I guess, a decline Ooh. in deposit beta? Yes. Any glimmer of hope, even if it's a glimmer of hope relative to expectations you know, three or six months ago?
1: Yes. Since the second quarter, we have seen a sharp deceleration of the rate of change, both in funding costs and also in asset returns. So asset returns kind of jumped for a few quarters, funding was right behind it. But after a while it started to ameliorate and I think consumers also calmed down a bit. You didn't have the kind of impulsive uh, decisions to move funding. I had a lot of friends who are on the boards of not for profits and other types of entities that were worried about their cash. And so they would open an account at JP Morgan in case they had to move the money. Um, But that, I think, has calmed down somewhat. That hasn't fixed the problem, though. So while it's good that the Fed and Treasury got ahead of the problem in terms of public perception, the arithmetic of accrued interest has not changed. And that's why I think when the term funding program ends, we're going to have to have a replacement, whatever we want to call it, right, Uh, to fund these legacy assets. And by the way, you're going to have the Treasury in the market next year, buying some of these low coupon treasury notes and and bonds and replacing them with current production, which will cost them money, by the way. They'll buy the the notes and the bonds at a discount, and then they'll issue new paper with a, a current coupon. That'll help, but there's still a huge ghetto out there of paper with very low coupons that nobody wants. Even though the yields are quite attractive, right? If you're a cash investor and you can hold this stuff, okay. Uh, I do that myself for my own portfolio. Mm-hmm. But if you're funding in the market, do you want to go out and buy a Ginnie Mae 3? No, definitely not. <laughs> and the dealers have the same problem. They don't want to hold legacy treasury paper that's trading at a deep discount because it, it, it's very risky. They're more volatile than current production. And the funding is a, is a net loss.
0: Yeah, I, uh, f- folks were talking about this on Twitter about how if you buy a 30-year treasury and yields go up 50 basis points, you mm-hmm. only lose a tiny little bit of a percent, but if it goes down 50 basis points in a year, you you gain something like 8 or 9% and that's of course cuz it it now has a very high relative to zero yeah. yield and so it's bonds are on a relative basis exceptionally attractive. Uh, To unlevered investors and agency mortgage backs that you just talked about they they get us Spreader than that they're 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 even more attractive But the problem is that banks are not unlevered investors. They are levered investors and there's a cost of funding
1: 15 to 1 No, so when you take a loss in a bank it very quickly eats you up You know, it's it's different. They always whine about non banks in Washington But they run at two or three times leverage typically maybe a little higher banks are 15 to 1 so when you start making mistakes Those mistakes eat up your capital very quickly because the leverage that helps you make money in good times right, comes back and starts chewing your arm off at bad times. Uh, That's why banks fail.
0: So earlier I asked about whether the bank term funding program uh, will be rolled over in Mm -hmm. March of 2024. You talked about uh, TARP 2.0, which I think. I and a lot of people would would see as a exceptionally generous uh, a package, a, a bailout to to banks of basically funding their their uh, securities at much much lower than market interest rates. So it's mm. it's essentially a giveaway funded with with warrants. So that's a not that fleshed out, well planned. Although I you know the, the, the guy who wrote it who wrote it. I can tell he's a very you know uh, uh, sophisticated thinker and oh, yeah. an interesting idea. But, um, well, Treasury but,
1: often takes warrants in return for public funding. If you go mm-hmm. back to the bailout of GM and the GSEs, they did take a warrant position, which I think is appropriate to compensate the taxpayer.
0: Right. But it's, it's a 300 basis points below par funding on a trillion of assets. So it's 30 billion a year. So that's, mm-hmm. a, that's a lot of warrants per year.
1: Well, that, that's- if you fund the asset and you take whatever the coupon is, I think that's a fair trade. You know, banks don't have a lot of choice. They have to own a certain number of treasuries and mortgage backs in their capital stack. What else are they going to own that has mm-hmm. that low risk weight, right? But the problem is, even though a Ginnie Mae has a zero risk weight, it has a very high risk in terms yes. of market risk.
0: Especially when interest rates are at zero.
1: That's right. So, you know, the street keeps trying to convince us that we should be buying mortgage backs for the portfolio. <laughs> but the spreads keep widening. So yep. uh, unless you're the Bank of Japan or someone like that who has a very long-term view and who basically says, "Fine, the paper's cheap. I'm going to buy a bunch of it," uh, and they don't have to fund themselves in the marketplace, uh, you know, anybody else who has to actually look at interest rates is uh, in trouble. And across the board, whether you're talking about muni's, autos, all of these asset classes are bumping right up against the cost of funds. So if you're a dealer, I sit next to our muni trader. Well, what the hell are you going to do? You might as well go home.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, I just want to uh, clarify. So you think that if the Federal Reserve were to re-up and, and roll over the bank term funding program in March of 2024, you think that wouldn't be enough? They need something more like TARP 2.0. No, it,
1: it's not that it's not enough. It would be helpful. If they don't mm-hmm. do it, we will yeah. have problems. I think the reason that things quieted down was that they threw the funding out there and they said, here, here's the money take it. That was helpful. The, uh, the Fed had to lend a couple hundred billion dollars to the FDIC too, because the FDIC didn't have the cash to fund three bank failures in a quarter, big banks. So something is going to have to happen, Jack. That's I don't, I don't think that's any question. Mm-hmm. What it'll be, I don't know. But isn't it ironic that we're talking about this and then the same regulators are going to come in and whack us with higher <laughs> capital uh, requirements for these same banks makes no sense at all.
0: One of my final questions is Is you and I, we've been talking about for, for a while, over a year, how the surge in short-term interest rates is unquestionably bad for at least some banks. Mm-hmm. Uh, what about the recent... Extreme bear steepening of the yield curve, where short-term rates have not really gone up that much, but long-term interest rates have gone up. So the mm-hmm. the you know if banks borrow short and lend long. That is good for their net interest margin, but it may also be bad for their book value. So do you mm-hmm. think uh, that the recent bear steeping over the past, let's say, two months, uh, has been good or bad or uh, neutral for the for banks?
1: They are not typical. Or, you know, banks are not typically buyers of long bonds. They, they might have some in the portfolio, but it's going to be relatively de minimis, because that's not their business. That's uh, for a different kind of investor. I think, you know, what's interesting about your question, Jack, is notice how hard it's been for the Fed to get short-term rates to go up. We've been loitering in this level for a long time, even after they've supposedly raised the target for Fed funds. And I think it's because a lot of really risk-averse investors know that there's a deflationary debt uh, problem coming, and we are going to have to restructure a lot of debt. So that's why I think the short end has been so difficult to move. The long end is just spread expansion. If you look at the mortgage backs, the spreads are at the wides, I think, going back 20 years now.
0: Yeah, 99 percentile. Yeah,
1: yeah but even with these yields, they still can't get people to come in because really for two reasons. If you pay a premium for a bond like this, so let's say the Fed drops interest rates in six months, that security is going to disappear because of prepayments. The mortgage lenders are so hungry that they're going to go after those borrowers and try and refinance them, right? Boom, gone. So that is, I think, part of the reason why investors haven't been willing to push yields back down on the long end, because they don't know what's going to happen. It's just the uncertainty about the interest rate outlook. You had a letter that just came from the American uh, home builders and the mortgage bankers and everybody else, the realtors. And what they said to the Fed was, could you tell us what you're going to do, please? We need some visibility. Uh, They weren't telling him not to do anything. They would like it if he didn't raise rates anymore. But they were saying, look, we can't function if there's no visibility in the marketplace. And that's what a lot of investors are dealing with.
0: And so if interest rates right now are, 5.25 5.25 to 5.5 percent uh and let's say assume the federal reserve doesn't do any more hikes and it, interest rates stay at 5.3 percent mm. you presumably sounds like thinks that that is going to pretty soon uh you know on a shorter or midterm time horizon cause a lot of problems in the banking sector what would be a sufficiently uh sufficient level of cuts to where you think the problem in the banking sector would be ameliorated would it to 4%, 3.5%, where are we sort of getting in the ballpark? You
1: would probably, if you had another, say, regional bank rollover where the FDIC had to intervene, you would probably need to push interest rates down at least a point, point and a half to give the market a little bit of lift because it's only then that the, uh, the hungry sharks are gonna come in and start buying failed assets. They're gonna come in and start buying buildings and things of this nature. If rates are rising, it's very hard to value these assets. So imagine if you're a a big Wall Street private equity fund, you're trying to put assets like this into a new fund you just created for restructuring commercial real estate, right? Well, you've gotta be really sure that you're not gonna lose money on that, especially as you're reading about your friends at Goldman Sachs taking their lumps on commercial properties. Uh, But this is a widespread problem. There are many, many, many players on Wall Street today that were betting heavily on commercial real estate over the last five, 10 years, and now they all have a problem. That's, mm-hmm. uh, that's where I think the problem is. It's on the commercial side. The, the consumer's not even really an issue yet. And I, I think that's good news in a sense, um, but there's you know, nobody out there shedding tears for landlords, for example, who didn't get any rent payments for two years during COVID. There's no member of Congress offering to make them whole. So that's that's really the issue. There are so many commercial properties out there that were hurt during COVID, and you know there's no way to repair them, really, except restructuring them.
0: And uh, one, my final question is. Mm-hmm. Do you think it's more likely that it will be a smaller regional bank that will have issues rather than large banks? I, I brought this point up earlier, and you, you somewhat agreed but somewhat disagreed that yeah. the large banks, J.P. Morgan, Bank of America, I mean Bank of America, I pulled the stats up, their, their commercial real estate exposure is small relative to history for those banks as well as you know, very mm. small relative to, to the small banks. and. No, I
1: don't think you can generalize. If, if you have a bank that's mismanaged, that has a lot of its assets underwater, such that they don't have earnings power and you can see it, that's all you need to know. It, it really comes down to confidence. If, if people believe that a bank is acting properly, then they're gonna support them. But if they believe that the management has missed something or if there's you know hidden risks or losses that we still don't know about, um, then that's when banks get in trouble. It's all. It has nothing to do with capital. It has everything to do with confidence and management confidence in their ability to manage through the cycle. And that's that's really what'll make or break these guys.
0: Mm, there we go. Well, got it, Chris. Thanks so much for for coming on, uh, sharing your My insights. Pleasure. People can, can find you, uh, the, the Institutional uh, Risk Analyst and Wayland Global Advisors, and of course, on Twitter at RC Wayland. Thanks again for coming on. Uh, and thank you, everyone, for watching.
1: All right. Thank you, Jack.